arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. We're moving up to the top of the hour. Here are the Moody Blues with Justin Haywood in your wildest dreams. Music play. 
seeing someone loved deeply, now gone, as a youth, and with all that entails, would be beyond, as they say, your wildest dreams. That is about to happen to Caroline in the upcoming episode. Lurking out there with as much negative emotion is Marco St. Germain, the future murderer of her husband. The aging school itself represents the past where Caroline and Ben now reside. And being back in 1968 is the demand of stopping the accident that changed Greg's life. Working at Binghamton's opens a wide door of possibility for Caroline, but she ends up with so much more than she had ever hoped for. Episode 2 of The River of Fate starts now. Chapter 7 A rectangular brick structure with a flat tin roof sat in the shadows at the bottom of the school hill next to a dirt lot down the street from Binghamton's department store. A few bright green and red neon signs flashed in a long row of translucent windows. Caroline opened the heavy wooden door to Muldoon's Bar. A black and white television set blasted out the World Series from wood grain side speakers on the stucco walls. A row of cloudy green windows faced Main Street as layers of drifting cigarette and cigar smoke inundated the high beam ceiling. A group of men hovered around Ben under the TV set. All of them, including Ben, yelled and cussed as they slopped down beer from oversized glass steins. Ben snuffed out his cigarette and sprang from the bar stool when he saw her. Caroline, you been shopping, eh? He looked at the white Binghamton's shopping bag draped over her arm. Then he whispered in her ear, I'll have your card on Friday. Tony the Rod is getting me the phone numbers in Harrisburg to verify the employment. Tony the Rod? You know I don't approve of illegal... Ah, Ben. She looked up at the game and furrowed her brow. Any score? No score. The game just started. Oh. Then he cupped his hand and whispered to her again. I remember this game. Horton hit one out in the second. Lolich in the third. And I'm almost sure that Norm Cash hit one when it all fell apart in the sixth. How can you remember all this, Ben? I never forget when my Tigers were in the series. But I have to be careful not to let the cat out of the bag. The Tigers won this game big. Eight to one. I'm just putting my money down and I'll shut up about the homers. Good thinking. I'm amazed. It's like you've lived here all your life, for crying out loud. Come on over. I'll introduce you to the boys. Guys? Guys! Meet Caroline! Most of them mumbled and some of them waved. They were all focused on the game. A stocky man with wavy crimson hair, wearing a spotted white apron and blue checkered shirt, walked up to Ben and wiped his hands on the apron. He had a gruff yet affable voice. This must be your niece, Ben. I'm Mickey Muldoon. I own this fine establishment, but I'm taking no responsibility for the manners of its patrons. Nice to meet you, Mickey, she said, shaking his pudgy hand. Can I get you something to eat? No, nothing to eat. Maybe something to drink. Beer or coke? He asked, and then he whispered. Oh, we do have the hot stuff. This this is a bar, you know. Coke is fine. He tiptoed around the bar, filled a glass with coke and ice, stuck in a stirrer, and brought it back to her. One coke. Thank you. Hey, Caroline, your uncle is one smart gambler. He called that game yesterday, four to nothing. I was banking on McLean destroying them cards. 
Hell, he won 30 games. My uncle is uh, something else. Ben smiled and winked at her. Then he toasted her with a beer mug, raising his index finger. All right, guys, I ain't betting, but I tell you, Horton will hit this one out. No way. No way. Come on. Caroline moved over to her uncle. She looked at the TV as Horton prepared to bat, and she whispered in Ben's ear. Don't press your luck, Benny boy. Oh, come on, Ben, said Mickey as he came around to watch. You really think he's going to hit it out? Caroline dipped into the salty pretzels and sipped her Coke as Horton stepped up to the plate. She moved the ice cubes around her tongue and then chewed them up. An odd, powerful feeling came over her when she realized how Ben knew what was going to happen. She observed their astonished faces as Horton swung and hit the ball deep. Then they all spun around to Ben. Nice call, Ben, she said, crunching the pretzel. You've got to be kidding, cripe! You're starting to scare me, Ben, yelled Mickey, turning back Caroline. What is it he says, uh, Jingle Bells? No, Jingleheimer, Caroline said, squinting. With a fixed smile, she dragged Ben across the bar. I thought you were going to keep your mouth shut. I couldn't help it, Caroline. I would try being a little bit more discreet. I'm still worried about that social security card. It's in the bag. Listen, I'll leave you to the game and catch you later back at the apartment. I'm going up to the school. I can't wait anymore. I have to see him. Who's the one who needs to be discreet? Well, I can't wait anymore. She nodded and hugged her uncle and then waved to his friends. Mickey stepped forward from the bar and wiped his hands with a white linen cloth. His voice became clear and loud. You're welcome in my humble establishment anytime, Caroline. How much do I owe you for the Coke? Consider it on the house. Well, I'm sure Ben will make up for it, she said, smiling. Mickey's crooked teeth were jammed into his mouth. Heck, I didn't think of that. You're right. Have a special day, will you? Thanks, Mickey. I believe I will. She gave Ben a quick wave and then pushed open the heavy door. Weather-worn bricks ascended up the green windows in the outside light. The flat corrugated metal roof extended above the windows. She rounded the sidewalk to the high school hill. Just seeing Greg's face would be miraculous. Talking to him could come later. Caroline gawked at the yellow-bricked high school and the students trickling out the green side doors. A few bulky cars exited the parking lot to the right as other students wandered away on foot. The ubiquitous clock tower's Roman numeral face seemed to follow her as she crossed the road. As if she were in combat, attacking an enemy position, she approached the huge quadrangle trees. Her stomach churned and sweat beads formed across her forehead as she anticipated seeing Greg. She stopped next to the chiseled granite block at the corner. Paul Revere High School, 1927. She peered through the sinewy branches at the entrance steps. An occasional leaf sauntered through the chilled air down to the concrete. She edged her way up the slabs to the exact spot where Marco St. Germain had been photographed in his defiant yearbook pose. She surveyed the town's sunlit buildings and smokestacks and the hills beyond. And then she dragged open the heavy doors. She tiptoed up the marble steps and walked into a dusty, sweet-smelling rotunda. The white columns were miniature versions of the outside granite pillars and local Reedsville murals highlighting the river graced the rim. A colorful depiction of the town seal and the high school name had been carefully inlaid into bold red and black letters in the mosaic floor. 
She figured as she edged her way down the main corridor, she might see Greg playing basketball in the gym. Wire mesh glass doors separated the corridor and white globe lamps hung from the long ceiling chains. The army green lockers and the glossy blue door frames had been painted over many times. Decades of foot traffic had worn the gray and maroon flooring in spots. Heavy varnished oak classroom doors with oversized brass knobs lined the hallways. Only a smattering of boys had long hair and a few spotted sideburns, but most of them wore neckties. She passed girls with full-length, straight, simple hairstyles. Their dresses and shoes contrasted with the jeans and sneakers of her students in the future. She approached a janitor sweeping the corridor's end, but she missed the connecting corridor to the gym. Am I near the gym? The uniformed, gray-haired custodian near the maintenance and electrical rooms turned. Oh, no, no. You'll need to go back to the main hall. Go to the end. There's another corridor. Follow it right down to the gym. Okay, that makes sense. He smiled and moved his broom forward along the tiles. Caroline retreated to the main corridor past more lockers and empty classrooms. Bevel metal frame clocks with black Roman numerals ticked the minutes in wood frame spacious classrooms. Elongated wood pane windows formed an outer wall that overlooked a residential street in the town below. Someone had handwritten the word detention on a small piece of yellow lined paper and stuck it on the next door frame. The greasy-haired Marco St. Germain caught her attention. He sat at one of the oak desks copying a book page. He gazed up from the paper. His deep eyes locked with hers and a surly smile rose like the smoke from a smoldering fire. She stood rigid. After all the months of staring at the black and white yearbook photo, her husband's killer sat 20 feet away. It was as if he had recognized her. She staggered against the lockers and clutched the cold locker handles and rumbled like a wounded animal back to the gym lobby. Her thoughts were broken by the reassuring sound of basketballs bouncing in the gym. Her heart pounded and a chilling sweat covered her brow. She repeatedly glanced at the detention room as she peered through the wire mesh glass. Four or five boys in red and black tank tops fired basketballs at the hoop, but she did not see Greg. Ever so slowly, she panned upward to the clear acrylic backboard. The basketball bouncing continued when she pushed open the door. She sidestepped below the backboard and then walked briskly across the wood floor to the stands. She climbed over the varnished bleacher rows near a few students watching the practice. About midway, she turned and placed her hands on her hips and faced the glossy wood floor with its red and white painted lines. The pale blue cinder blocks across the court were emblazoned with a logo of Paul Revere riding his horse across the countryside. She still did not see Greg. Light flowed into the gym from a block-like opaque window span behind the hoop and a crimson team banner hung across the cinder blocks designating Revere as the 1967 state champions. The corner locker room door crashed open against the bleachers, and a balding overweight man entered the gym with a few more players. She fell back against the bleachers as a graceful sadness surged through her body. Greg, minus his glasses and 20 pounds lighter, ran onto the gym floor. A few of the young girls cheered from the bleachers as goosebumps moved up her arms. Slender and his hair cropped short, 
Greg wore a red and black school jersey and black sweatpants. His smooth skin and precise movements astounded her. He glanced around the gym. Someone threw him a basketball. He turned, popped, and effortlessly swished the ball through the net. A bleach-blonde teeny bopper across the gym clapped, but Greg did not seem to notice. Caroline's throat tightened and her eyes moistened. Like a voyeur in her husband's life, she watched his every move. Agile and quick, Greg could twist and turn, fake and dodge, and consistently sink the ball through the hoop. She wiped away her tears quickly. He had the same wide smile that would captivate her so many years in the future, but in his innocence he had no conception of his own destiny. She had the means to bring this young life to its full potential. Stopping the accident meant keeping Marco out of his life. Marco's detention room stare unnerved her as she focused on Greg and could not understand how Greg would associate with Marco St. Germain. The accident and the closing of his college career must have irreparably changed the man she would marry. He moved gracefully like a young animal prancing through the forest, and when he missed a shot, he hustled to get the rebound. She wanted to leap from the bleaches onto the gym floor and scream that she had come back in time to stop the accident. Such a ludicrous stunt would destroy her credibility. Given her attraction to Greg, she could not avoid him, and only Ben's words about changing the future held her back. Preventing Greg from injury late in the afternoon of December 20, 1968, had become her overriding mission. The window span had lost most its daylight when practice broke up later, and the team gathered across the court. Despite his disheveled appearance, the coach proved an unusually strong motivator and had the team cheering. Greg descended the bleaches and stood upright on the shiny floor. Wiry and slim, Greg had a ready smile. A few of his friends talked to him as he retreated across the floor. Someone handed him a white towel and he draped it around his neck and then jogged away. He lingered only a few feet from her but did not acknowledge her presence as he disappeared into the locker room. The longing intensified as her husband, once dead, now lived. She meandered back across the gym floor and her tears flowed freely down her cheeks. Once in the lobby, she glimpsed toward the detention room, but opted to veer toward the outside doors. Greg's practice in the gym, just minutes before, flipped into her thoughts like strobe light images in the night. Shadows were deep now across the cracked asphalt lot, and the river reflecting the orange sunset cut like a glowing tube through the purple hills. Greg continued to occupy her thoughts as she paralleled the yellow bricks along the sidewalk toward the street. Seeing him alive proved extraordinary, but watching him in his prime bordered on magical. She faced the gym windows near the lobby. What they had together in the future might never exist here in the past. Chapter 8 The oil burner hummed in the basement and forced the toasty air through the cozy Canterbury Street apartment's floor registers. When they finished the hamburger and bean supper, Caroline and Ben relaxed in front of the square black-and-white TV. Ben giggled as if he were a kid and pointed at a younger Walter Cronkite delivering the news. Cronkite retired in 1981, said Caroline. I remember my dad talking about his last broadcast. 
a film from a Nixon political rally, came on the square box screen. Look, Caroline, I like Nixon. So did Amy. Ben, Nixon resigned. Well, Nixon should have just deep-sixed them tapes. I tell you, Caroline, they were gunning for him. He had enemies big time. I suppose, but so did other presidents. Well, they didn't get caught. She shook her head. Ben, there's no winning with you. Good, I'm glad we understand one another. Caroline smiled and went to get a Coke for herself. You want a beer? You read my mind. He motioned to the TV again. Caroline, Caroline, the Marlboro Man. Listen to that music. Bump, 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 bump. You're in Marlboro country. Oh, it makes me want to start smoking, Ben. She poured the Coke from a large bottle and then pierced the beer can with a triangular can opener. I don't need no glass. Good, I wasn't going to get you one, she said, handing him the cold can. You didn't tell me if you won that bet. I hated to do it. Hated to do what? Lose. What? I dropped 500. Tigers won again today, and I know the cards will win the next one. I'm just taking your advice, not pressing my luck. Good idea. You don't want any nefarious people breathing down your neck. You mean people like Marco St. Germain? That sicko, he looked right at me. You got too close. There are powerful forces here, Caroline. I swear, he knew. When he looked up from writing that paper, he knew. I felt the evil. Ben nodded as army choppers landed in a rice paddy in Vietnam on the screen. Damn war. I don't know why Walter Cronkite came out against the wall last winter. Uncle Walter says something and ears perk up. Ben turned with tears in his eyes. My buddy Al lost his son, Huey. Nice kid. He was killed in 67. Her smile collapsed. Well, I'm sorry. Ben nodded and exhaled. Look, we don't even have to deal with St. Germain at all. We came here to stop the accident. St. Germain is irrelevant. Maybe you're right. I keep thinking how evil he is and forget that the accident is the main thing. Good thinking, Ben. Look, we'll make this thing work. Oh, I'm just so afraid that Greg is going to start hanging out with this guy. No, no, not before the accident. I talked to some of the guys down at Muldoon's about Greg. Not only is he a gifted athlete, but he's a good kid. And his dance card is full. He's got games and pro scouts after him. Unless we mess this up, Greg should be all right. Caroline leaned over the armchair and put her hand on Ben's shoulder. Ben, you should have seen him hitting those baskets. I've never seen anything like it. You have to see him. Well, we'll go to one of the games, replied Ben as the commercial ended. Ah, here comes Cronkite's rap. Oh, yeah, I used to end the broadcast the same way every night, right? She turned to the set and laughed as Ben imitated Cronkite as he spoke. And that's the way it is. October 7th, 1968. I'm Walter Cronkite, Ben Thatcher. Good night, and good night, Uncle Walter. Oh, yeah, Ben, you sound just like him, she said, appreciating her uncle's company. Hey, Ben. Hey, what? I'm glad you're back here with me. Caroline, like I keep telling you, there's a reason for everything. I know, she said as she hugged him. I've stopped questioning why we're back here. Smart move. When the phone rang, Caroline started toward the hall, but Ben slid by her. I got it, I got it. Okay, okay, she said as she smiled. The rug braids pressed into her acrylic stockings as she traipsed across the room. Then she leaned on the wide sill and stared out the window overlooking the quiet Canterbury Street. 
The trees at night almost looked like summer. She turned when Ben raised his voice. I'm telling you, Mickey, that the cops are crazy. Who? I talked to Lieutenant St. Germain. We all said we had no bets on anything. I know, Mickey, I know. Well, no, we, we won't bet in your place, I promise. What? He said he would arrest me? Oh, Jingleheimer Smith, come on, Mickey. Caroline ran to the hall door before he hung up the phone. I knew that would happen, Ben, I knew it. Lieutenant St. Germain? I doubt they're related. See, they're on to your gambling, Ben. They'll arrest you. He held her shoulders. No one's going to arrest no one. You have to be careful. It's still a long way to December 20th. She headed into her bedroom and knelt down before the window casing. Traffic along Main Street buzzed just a few blocks away. Ben took his gambling much too lightly, and now he had endangered stopping Greg's accident. She again thought about Greg's startling quickness and perfect shooting back in the gym. Her love for him had deepened and transcended time, and she wanted to see him play and excel at the game he loved. Chapter 9 She left Canterbury Street early, wearing a simple white blouse and green plaid skirt that she had bought at Binghamton's. She buttoned the upper part of her raincoat and moved up the hill in the nippy wind toward Main Street. She held a fresh red, white, and blue social security card with a number and her name. She never reached Mrs. Stone, but left a message with Polly at the switchboard. Forty-five minutes later, Polly relayed a message for Mrs. Stone for Caroline to report to work this morning at 9 a.m. Her thoughts were with Greg in the future when he sold a commercial building downtown last summer, and to celebrate, he made reservations at a lodge in the country. The wind lessened as she rounded the sidewalk onto Main Street in Reedsville, Pennsylvania. That weekend at the lodge, making love by the fireplace, existed only in the future. Ahead of her now, down the sidewalk, the three-story building watched over Main Street. She pushed the glass doors, captivated again by the store's ambiance and detailed architecture. The warmer air soothed her face as she glided through the first-floor departments and up to the elevator. The dial above slowly moved toward the first floor. The door opened and Gil, wearing a purple bow tie, pulled back the diamond-shaped inner gate. He held the lever with his hand as he looked at her new clothes. Well, spiffy outfit, Caroline. Well, good morning, Gil, and thank you. He closed the doors and moved the lever. Then he spoke in a low voice from the side of his mouth. Remember, Mrs. Stone is very particular, but her bark is worse than her bite. I'll remember that. And one more thing about a big store. Everybody talks. You've got your friends, but you're not so much friends, he said as they passed the second floor. And at Binghamton's, he said, raising his index finger, you're important to us. Here we are, third floor, bedding, and the main office. Here I go, Gil. You'll do fine. Thank you. The gate closed as she walked into the main aisle past the puffy comforters, sheets, and pillowcases stacked on the glass shelves. Several ladies darted around the counter, handing out meadow cash register drawers for the daily transactions. Mrs. Stone, wearing a gray dress, stood rigid behind the counter. Her lips were tight and her steel-blue eyes scanned the area. Welcome to Binghamton's department store, Miss Thatcher. Thank you, Mrs. Stone. At Binghamton's department store, you're important to us. Yes, so let's begin your day. 
You, my dear, will be a floater. A what? A floater works between various departments. Sooner or later, we all settle down to our niche. I, of course, worked in the office since the day I started, 46 years ago this summer. I guess you know everything there is to know. We are all capable of learning, young lady. Don't forget that. We'll send you down to our shipping department after you fill out the customary forms. Maury and Shipping will get you your punch card and then report back to my office. Caroline bounded down the stairs and held the black iron railing. The curtains and shade department on the second floor bustled with people. She held her employment application in her hand as she descended to the main level. A plethora of new shoppers moved through the various departments on the first floor. Binghamton hired employees with a service-oriented attitude that impressed Caroline. She inadvertently walked into the shoe department near the rear entrance, and a pudgy little man directed her to a swinging set of doors with two square windows. She entered a fluorescent-lit area lined by faded bricks and a dirty green garage door to the right. A mannequin in the boxes along the wall startled her. Through the next set of door windows, she saw a few people working under a set of fluorescent tube lights. She opened the door, and a hunched-over man with thick glasses placed a cigarette in an ashtray. He had a quirky smile, but his gold-rimmed glasses magnified his glossy blue eyes. His cranberry sweater ripped at the elbow, and his gray baggy pants half-covering his shoes gave him a homeless appearance. Under a single incandescent bulb, half-open boxes and paperwork covered his work area. He wiggled off his wood stool, staggered for a second, and extended his hand. I'm Maury Camden. His smooth hand enveloped her hand, but he had a weak grip. Caroline Thatcher, Mrs. Stone sent me down to get a punch card, and then I'll let her know I punched in. Maury pulled his pants higher under his sweater. A new hire. Sure, I'm in charge of that punch clock, that's for sure. Let me get your card. Maury waddled along the bin, stuffed with more boxes and merchandise. He opened a small closet's padlock and disappeared inside. A younger kid lifted a garage door and a truck's loud motor reverberated inside. The driver descended the stairs as Maury secured the padlock. She panned the back room, aware that Greg worked in this area. One punch card over light, <laughs> said Maury as he chuckled. He walked slightly tilted as if his back were strained. Step into my office, my dear. He pulled another stool next to his stool and patted the wood with his open hand. Caroline quickly sat down, but Maury held the edge of his desk and maneuvered himself like an ocean liner coming into port, finally sitting on the stool. Ten seconds of seat adjustments allowed him to get comfortable. He grabbed one of his pens out of a Binghamton's cup and adjusted his glasses and stared at the manila card. Thatcher, you said. He glanced over his shoulder. Caroline. He pinched his cigarette from the ashtray, puffed it red, and then exhaled. Then he scratched her name on the card in black ink. He leaned forward and smiled. There. So I'm official now. You are. He handed her the card. The punch clock is right next to the elevators. Punch in and then find Mrs. Stone. She held the card and patted Maury on the shoulder. Thank you. Any questions, you just call good old Maury. The kid in the other room laughed and cupped his hand next to his mouth. You can ask all you want, but don't expect any answers. Hey, quiet back there before I give you a knuckle sandwich. 
The scrawny kid with scruffy hair laughed and Caroline started back toward the door. She passed a huge trash compactor and then entered the outside corridor through the first set of doors. As she glanced down at her watch, a sudden thud shook the doors. The left door grazed her arm. She opened her mouth to speak when Greg, dressed in a sweatshirt, jeans, and sneakers, appeared in front of an empty stock cart. Oh, my God! He looked into her eyes. Gee, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean... I didn't know you were back here. Her heart, catching up with her emotions, exploded. Greg! Huh? Greg! You know me? He stared, not recognizing her. I, uh, I know you. You do? He smiled as only he could smile and continued looking into her eyes. Well, I mean, I know who you are. Everyone in town knows who you are, Greg. He pushed the car aside and the door swung shut behind him. As they stood alone in the cold stockroom corridor, she did not want to embrace him as much as she wished to run her fingers gently over his young face. Years from now, she had fallen in love with this man, now younger, innocent, with his whole life ahead of him. Oh yeah, basketball. I guess a lot of people see me play and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He still had Greg's whimsical voice. Sorry about the door. Well, besides the ten stitches and the concussion, I'm fine. Caroline smiled, not knowing how he would take her sarcasm, but he produced a familiar hearty laugh. Hey, that was funny. Do you work here or are you just visiting? He crossed his arms as he leaned against the wall. She recognized the pose. You make it sound like jail. Well, all jails can be broken out of, Missy. He rubbed his hands together. There are plenty of places to hide in this place. You're not a new assistant manager or anything, are you? No, I'm a floater. Oh, good. Come on, let's get out of the range of fire, he said, holding her elbow and moving her toward the stockroom. His momentary touch enchanted her. Her heart beat out of control as he pulled the cart into the stock area. I don't want fine to see me standing around talking to some nice-looking woman. Why, thank you. He seemed unaware of the compliment, even as her face flushed. When Fine is here, everybody works. Wait, I, I saw you before. You were at one of my practices. That's right. I saw you in the bleachers and walking down the street later. I was driving that red Chevy, you know, the fastback. Well, thanks for the ride, she said with a grin. Oh, sorry. You're a basketball fan. Well, sort of. My uncle and I just moved into town. Oh, you were just killing time then. Ah, uh, that pretty much sums it up, she said, nodding her head. How do you find time to work, Greg? You know, with homework, basketball. You're one good basketball player. Well, people keep telling me that, and I tell them I don't even think about it. I just get out there and play. I believe that. What's your name, anyway? Me? No, the mannequin over there in the trash. She giggled as she spoke. <laughs> Caroline. Caroline Thatcher. Well, I look forward to working with you, Caroline Thatcher, he said, briefly squeezing her hand, his flesh touching her flesh. And come by and watch my practice again. Next time I'll give you a ride. Promises, promises. At that moment, Mrs. Stone passed through the swinging doors and faced Greg. A smile cracked her solid countenance. Greg? Just meeting your newest employee, Mrs. Stone. Greg could always talk his way out of anything. You made a good choice. It's really my fault, Mrs. Stone. Well, nothing gained, nothing lost, said Mrs. Stone. Ah, your punch card. I can show you where to punch in. 
Punching in on time and being prompt is most important. I'll see you, Caroline. Greg pushed the car through the doors. I'm sure you will, Greg. Her heart still raced as she regained that warm feeling she had lost outside Symphony Hall in Chicago. Mrs. Stone cleared her throat. Startled, she handed the punch card to her. Mrs. Stone escorted her outside and Caroline searched the sales floor, pausing at each support column for any sign of Greg. Straight down the front of the store, past the elevators and near the cosmetics department, Greg, pushing the cart, disappeared behind the front column. This is a wonderful place, said Caroline, not quite sure that this dream would last. Yes, of course. As long as you work hard in this world, you will get what you want. Caroline nodded and pursed her lips, knowing that working hard sometimes had nothing to do with success. Chapter 10 Caroline did not see Greg all day after their initial encounter in the backroom corridor. When she left work and approached the exit through the shoe department door, Greg's fastback car turned from the parking lot and onto Clinton Avenue. Mr. Fine stopped her before she could exit, and Greg's taillights blended into the night. Mrs. Stone tells me you were in our six departments today. Exactly six, Mr. Fine. She peered through the glass, but the red car had left the parking lot. So much for rides home. Fine caught sight of a department manager. And how are things in the boys' department, Vicky? Well, ask Caroline. She put out all those jackets and sweaters. Well, another day, another dollar. I know what you mean, Vicky retorted, and she walked outside with Caroline. Then she looked back inside as the door closed. The way he pays, it's another day and another dime. Caroline smiled as she scanned the outer street for Greg's car. I met an interesting kid today. Oh, you must mean Greg Provost. How did you know? Because every girl in the store wants to date him. I would too, but Mr. Harris wouldn't be too happy. We've been married 38 years. Well, congratulations. Greg is a gifted basketball player. My uncle is looking forward to seeing his games. Oh, you'll be impressed, but today they had him cleaning two and a half all day long. Two and a half? Vicky took out her keys next to a white Plymouth Valiant. See the main building over there? Caroline looked up at the brick facade of the main structure. Three floors. True, but to your left is a separate building, also originally owned by Mr. James Binghamton, Colonel Binghamton. He rented out space to lawyers, and they had other office spaces. They made a stop on the freight elevator, not the one that Gill operates. And it's halfway between the floors. Bingo! She twisted her lips. You need a ride back to, uh, where is it you live? Canterbury Street? Oh, thanks, but I have to get some groceries for my uncle and myself at that supermarket near the high school. Get in, Miss Thatcher. I live over on Westmont Street. I'll bring you to the RPM. RPM? Reedsville Public Market. Great, thank you. She opened the passenger door and got inside. Saves me walking up that big hill. Well, RPM has the best prices, said Vicky as she started the car. Mr. Harris likes the fresh vegetables. Well, I think Ben will, too. Ben? Oh, my uncle. Oh, the one who wants to see Greg Provost play basketball. Right. Caroline smiled as Vicky turned up the high school hill and headed to the Reedsville Public Market. 
The Reedsville Public Market sale posters were taped on the glass with masking tape at the corners. Caroline pushed a shopping cart onto the sensor pad, and the automatic side door hummed open. Celery stalks and a roll of French bread stuck out of the paper bag stuffed into her metal cart. Once outside, she located a payphone on the yellow cinder block walls. She placed her foot on the edge of the cart and located a taxi company in the yellow pages. The dispatcher said they could have a cab at the market in five minutes. She steered the cart along the wide window glow. Lights twinkled across the hills and river under a cobalt sky. The future so far away from this cool Pennsylvania evening beckoned with a devastating uncertainty. At least working at Binghamton's would allow her to develop some kind of friendship with Greg. She had sensed a connection with him in the backroom corridor. As she checked her digital watch, a car engine resonated off the cinder blocks. A black convertible crept along the sidewalk like a tank near the overfilled trash bins. Wearing a black leather jacket and turtleneck, Marco St. Germain in the front seat pinched a cigarette stub between his fingers. Her stomach quivered when he slowly leaned toward her. The tires crackled the pavement dirt as the car stopped. Marco spoke in a clear but high-pitched voice. Hello, lovely lady. We meet again. Caroline inched along the market window and checked the parking lot for the cab. Marco pushed the oversized car door open. Fear merged with a sudden anger. In 25 years, this guy would ruthlessly gun down Greg in Chicago. She gritted her teeth. I don't know you. He grinned like a bloodthirsty tiger and thrust his foot against the shopping cart as his friends chuckled inside the car. Then he put both his pale, bony hands on the metal carriage frame. Liquor reeked on his breath. Oh, you don't know me? I told you I don't know you. I think when a gorgeous lady walks by me and gives me the look, I remember that look, he said, exposing his yellow teeth. Back off. Oh, feisty little thing. He waltzed around the cart and positioned his unshaven face closer. I think you're pretty cute, baby. Caroline's rage spread to her tightened fist. You listen to me, you little bastard. You get your ass back in that car with your buddies, or I'll call the cops. My friends call me Marco, lovely lady, he said, touching her long hair. She swung her arm, but still smiling, he grasped his cold hand around her wrist. Anytime you want it, baby, you have my name. Just look me up and I'll give you what you need. Caroline smacked her bunched fist against his wrist and spit in his face. I told you to back off, you little bitch. He wiped his cheek and raised his hand, but she wedged the cart between them. She repeatedly pushed the cart at him as the green and white cab pulled along the sidewalk. I'll get you for that, bitch. Nobody does that to me. Well, I just did. Like a cat, he rounded the cart and grabbed her wrist again, but her watch baffled him. What the hell is this toy? A stocky man, well over six feet tall, rushed out of the cab and around the hood. He barreled into Marco, knocking him to the pavement. He looked at the black car and then to Marco, groggy on the ground. Get lost, you little punk, and the rest of your buddies. Marco attempted to stand but fell back to the ground. His two friends slinked around the car and lifted him to his feet. He brushed the dust off his leather jacket and pushed away his friends. Sneering at Caroline, he climbed in the passenger seat and slammed the door as his friends re-entered the car. The wheels spun, leaving a burnt rubber remnant as the car skidded across the RPM parking lot. 
He thrust up his middle finger and Caroline closed her eyes. The cabbie planted his feet on the sidewalk until the convertible disappeared off the lot. Caroline wiped away her tears as he loaded the paper grocery bags into the cab's trunk. She knew Marco would not leave her alone now. His undue attention added a further complication in what had been a simple act of preventing Greg's December accident. Chapter 11 Her clammy hands shook incessantly as they approached the apartment. The rapid breathing had slowed, but her heart still pitter-pattered as she peered out of the cab at the glowing taffeta shades on the second-story window of the Canterbury Street apartment. At least Ben had arrived back home. The driver, who called himself Hutch, shifted and then parked along the curb. He had thoughtful, deep eyes and bushy, curly hair, and bushy hair. I can track down that jerk, Miss Thatcher. Boys down at the fire station would love to shut him down. Fire station? Reedsville, volunteer fireman. Just give me the word. I would just like to forget what happened. I'll tell you one thing, he said, raising his index fingers. Morons like him only understand equal or greater force. Her voice cracked. I know. Let me help you with the groceries. It's okay. My uncle is home. Hutch opened the rear door and extended his hand. She gripped it, but her legs warbled as she stepped onto the sidewalk. A hundred yards down Main Street, dozens of taillights trailed into the night, and she exhaled in the cooler air. Hutch checked the sidewalk in both directions before opening the trunk. She gripped the handle, but her legs warbled as she stepped onto the sidewalk. I insist, said Hutch as he encircled the three paper bags of groceries. Caroline nodded. That little twerp won't bother you no more. I don't be so sure of that, she said as she moved ahead of him up the concrete steps. Ben flipped on the overhead light in the hall and bounded down the stairs. Well, look who's back here. Thank God, said Caroline. Ben's eyes darted between Hutch and Caroline. What's the matter? She wrapped her arms around him and wept onto his shoulder. Oh, Ben. Name's Hutch Henderson, said the cabbie. Your niece was taunted by some creep. St. Germain, said Ben, and he held her shoulders. What did he do? As she continued whimpering, Hutch stepped with the bags inside. He was threatening her, but he won't any more. Hutch knocked him to the ground. Well, thank you, Hutch, said Ben as he scooped up one of the bags. This guy is bad news. Come on, let's get upstairs. Caroline glanced to the glass doors and wondered why she was still scared. The steps echoed like bongo drums as they ascended to the upstairs apartment. Hutch set the two remaining bags on the table. Ben offered him a $10 tip, but he pushed Ben's hand back. I don't need to get paid for doing the right thing. He handed both of them his card. You call me if this creep comes back. Ben tucked the bill back in his wallet. Well, at least let me buy you a drink sometime down at Muldoon's. Oh, sure, I drop a lot of people off at Muldoon's, but I've never been in there. Sure, sometime. Thanks again, said Ben. Hutch nodded and closed the hall door. Caroline rushed over and flipped the deadbolt. How the heck did you get involved with St. Germain? She froze for several seconds and then went to the window. The cold glass matched the chilling feeling in her gut. All I did, Ben, was walk by him at the school. You remember that. How could that one detention thing cause him to start in on you? Asked Ben with his hands on his hips. 
He reached into the refrigerator and pulled out a Coke bottle. Then he used the can opener to pop the cap and he passed the bottle to Caroline. His eyes were evil in that room. Maybe I looked vulnerable, she said as she took a swig of the cool, bubbly liquid. People like him sensed things like that, Ben. He knew he could taunt me. And he remembered that when he and his buddies pulled up to the market, he jumped out and stopped my cart. Well, I'll beat the daylights out of that punk. Ben, he's got 40 years on you. He's dangerous. Then I'll get a club. He's just a punk. He's dangerous. It brought back everything about Greg's death. How did a nice kid like Greg hang out with him anyways? Well, Greg got all mixed up after he couldn't play no more. A little therapy would have solved his hurt, but they don't have much therapy in this time. She nodded. Can we get a court order or something? Well, I'll see what I can do. I'll see if I can talk to the chief of police or one of the detectives. We just have to keep Marco at bay until after we stop Greg's accident. Ben stroked his chin. You get that tag number? She shook her head and drank the Coke. Ben picked up the telephone. That's okay. Don't matter. We know who the hell it is. What are you doing? Calling the cops, my dear. She crossed the room and set the drink on the table. Ben, you'll upset him. I don't give a damn if I do. He dialed the old rotary phone. Operator, I need the Reedsville Police Department. She walked over to the bay window and stared at the lights across town. Sometimes I believe that there is evil in this world. Yes, uh, my name is Ben Thatcher. I live over on Canterbury Street with my niece. Ben's wide forehead creased as he listened. He struck a match and lit a camel. Okay, Sergeant, now this is what I need to report. My niece was harassed this evening at the supermarket. The Reedsville Public Market. Yes, yes, the RPM. Ben exhaled the smoke as Caroline crossed the rug and quickly retrieved a beer from the refrigerator. She handed it to Ben. He whispered, thank you. His name is Marco Sick. What's the matter? What do you mean you're aware? I want this guy to stay away from my niece. He punctured the can with the can opener, but did not drink. You'll look into this. I know what that means. Well, thanks a lot. What did he mean? Ben stared at the phone and then set it back on the receiver. Means somebody is covering for this punk. You don't know that, Ben. Trust me. I worked 34 years as an insurance adjuster, Caroline. I've heard it all. I know when someone is running cover. He sat down and her eyes moistened. Oh, don't cry. I've never been frightened of anyone, Ben, like I am of him. Then the tears trailed down her cheeks and Ben quickly rushed over to comfort her. I'm afraid he'll try and kill us like he did Greg. He's just a punk kid right now. We're here to stop Greg's accident and we'll stay clear of St. Germain. He wiped her cheeks with a tissue. I can't believe I walked by that detention room. What bad luck. You would have seen him eventually. Just keep me safe, Ben. I will. If he pushes further, I'll kill him myself. As she drifted into a light sleep, Caroline imagined driving along an isolated dirt road at twilight. She passed rows of sun-tipped corn stalks casting stark shadows onto the gritty surface. The vehicle struggled as if it were constrained by an unknown force. At the top of the knoll, where the road cut the huge cumulus cloud sky and the cornfield, the gypsy, in a wispy, ghost-like dress, stood in the airy sunset light, 
Caroline hammered the brake pedal with her sneaker, but the car went forward. She jiggled the door handle. The side panel indicated the doors were unlocked, yet the door would not open and the car had stopped. The old woman's voice filled the car. Ot vim, invadium, ot vacuum. Ot vim, invadium, ot vacuum. As Caroline approached, the woman faded into an alabaster presence, with only her cold eyes fixed on Caroline. She moved backward into the cornfield and disappeared. What does it mean? What does it mean? she called out. A chilled air brushed her bare arm. Slowly she turned toward the driver's window. Deep within the silver-lit cornstalks, Marco St. Germain advanced like a swath, singeing the corn in a smoldering wake. Wearing his leather jacket, his intense black eyes focused on Caroline. He reached inside his jacket and produced a serrated switchblade knife. The glistening blade popped outward as darkness replaced the twilight. With a sickening smile on his face, he held the blade outward as he neared the edge of the cornfield. No! 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 She cried and revved the engine, but the car did not move. St. Germain's grin widened as he slowly waved the knife blade. The wind outside whipped the cornstalks and the smoke behind. The clouds blackened in the sky and rain hit the windshield as lightning cut the night sky. Caroline pushed on the horn. St. Germain kicked his boot against the window glass, shattering it. She screamed till Ben shook her shoulders. Caroline, it's okay. She opened her eyes in the Canterbury Street apartment's dim bedroom light. Sweat drenched her temples. The warm air pushed through the iron grate floor registers and the furnace groaned in the basement. She looked into his misty eyes, reflecting an outside blue neon sign. Oh my God, he was right outside the car window. Just a dream, Caroline, just a dream, he said as she held him tight. Mine does strange things. He, he was right there, Ben. I know, I know. He isn't going to stop. He's just going to keep coming. I can feel it. This man is obsessive. And the gypsy. Write this down. Write this down, Ben. Ot vium invenium ot vacuum. Well, what the hell is that? He said, pulling a pencil off the nightstand. What the, what was that? Ot vium invenium ot vacuum. Ben wrote down each word as she repeated it. What the hell does that mean? I never heard or read that phrase, Latin, and she said it. She took the paper from Ben's hand. There's no internet here. I have to go to the library and look this up. Ben nodded in the flashing blue light. He stood and peered out the window. I will take care of this. What are you going to do, Ben? Don't go putting yourself in harm's way. His pug nose and tiger's hat silhouetted against the flashing blue neon, and his eyes glistened. He slowly shook his head. Sometimes force must be met with force. Chapter 12 Ben slapped the chrome bell on the police station smudged for Mike O'Connor. A fluorescent bulb flickered in front of the metal desk along the filing cabinets. A tall, stocky sergeant in a blue shirt emerged from the rear office. He had thin, wavy hair and a deep voice. Yes, sir. I need to talk to the chief. That right. And who the hell are you? Sarge, I'm a man with a complaint. If I had to plug nickel for every complaint in this town, I might be able to become chief. 
Ben removed a nickel from his pocket and spun it on the counter. The sergeant grinned and extended his hand. Dan Brewer. Ben Thatcher. Where do you live, Thatcher? Mickey Muldoon's. Brewer put his tongue in his cheek and shook his head. Canterbury Street. Let me get the chief. Ben paced on the squeaky floor. Through the dusty blinds, he gazed at Binghamton's down the hill and the river beyond. He wondered what the cops could do about Marco St. Germain. Hey, Thatcher, the chief will see you in back, said Brewer from behind the counter. Hey, great. Ben walked through the Dutch door and shook Brewer's huge hand. Thanks, Dan. Well, don't mention it. A little guy with clumpy black hair and beady eyes peered from a fluorescent-lit side office. His shadowy beard gave him a rough appearance. He wore a blue shirt open at the collar, and his teeth were crooked. Hey, Dick Fernone. I'm Ben Thatcher. He had a handshake stronger than Dan Brewer. Well, Sergeant Brewer said you had a complaint. Did one of my boys stop you for speeding? Well, I wish you were that simple there, Chief. Dick, he said. He sat behind a desk with nothing on it. My niece Caroline has been harassed by some creep. Fernot's smile lines tightened. I don't like that. You want me to press charges? Well, not really. I just want this guy to back off. Okay, we can talk to him. Uh, do you have a description? Asked Fernot, now sitting on the edge of the desk. Well, I know exactly who he is. Marco St. Germain. Fernot's eyes opened wide. Then he squinted. Well, I see. He's a senior at Paul Revere. Fernot wrote something down on his pad. Well, I'll take care of this, Mr. Thatcher. Don't you worry about it. Well, damn, that was easy. Well, we, we don't tolerate any crap here in Reedsville. Don't you want to hear what happened? Oh, not necessary, Mr. Thatcher. Ben stared at him for a few moments. Then you must have had problems with him before. Like I said, we'll uh, take care of it. Ben pretended to salute. Well, I appreciate it, and so does my niece. Rest easy, Mr. Thatcher. He stood and escorted Ben out of the office. I will speak to him personally. Oh, that's great. Thank you. He shook Fernot's hand again and looked at Brewer, reading the paper. He neared the counter, and Brewer looked up. Hey, Thatcher, maybe I'll see you down at Mickey Muldoon's. Sounds like a good idea, said Ben as he headed to the door. He heard Brewer's chair squeak, and then he heard the chief say something about Marco St. Germain. Something was amuck, because he could not hear the chief anymore, because the office door slammed. Ben set down his cards and shrugged his shoulders at Mickey behind the bar. The red-headed Mickey poured another beer for him and set it on the counter. Well, you can't win them all, Ben. Why not? He asked with a grin. His smile dropped when he saw three cops walk inside the bar. Are you, uh, Muldoon? Asked the lanky, bald-headed cop in the beige raincoat. Yeah, who's asking? Asked Mickey. I'm Lieutenant uh, St. Germain. Ben held his glass in midair. I'm checking on uh, some gambling complaints. Mickey eyed Ben for a second. Ben took a drag on the cigarette and snuffed it in the ashtray. This is a barroom, Lieutenant. His tiny brows seethed with a restrained anger. Well, I know the crap that's been going on in here, Muldoon. And uh, I know some guy won a lot of dough on the World Series. 
Mickey walked around the bar and threw his linen rag down. You don't walk into my place and start your shit. Unless you're going to charge somebody, pal, get out. I got uh, men watching this place, and I'll lock you up with the rest of your flunkies if you get out of line. Mickey's face flushed crimson, and he went nose to nose with the lieutenant. Good. I serve my customers from the can. The lieutenant said nothing. He turned, and the other two officers followed him out the door. Somebody shouted from the table. You told him, Mickey. Listen, you bunch of toughies. Keep a lid on your bets. At least until he backs off. Then he looked at Ben and smiled. And you, your public enemy number one. St. Germain? Is he related to Marco St. Germain? Ah, who the hell knows? I just met him. Ben put a dollar on the bar and stood. Hell, it's 6.30. I have to meet Caroline at Binghamton's. We're going to Greg's game up at the high school. As far as that lieutenant, I can find out who the hell he is. Mickey called out as Ben moved toward the Main Street door. Be careful, Ben. The guy looks crooked to me. The cold air hit Ben's face, and he started down the Main Street sidewalk under the streetlights. In the distance, a black-and-white police cruiser signaled right and turned up the street near Binghamton's. Ben shook his head and started toward the store. He kept thinking about the confrontation in the bar. The lieutenant looked nothing like Marco St. Germain, yet he sensed a connection. A rumbling on the sidewalk behind Ben broke his concentration. He turned quickly as a little red rambler accelerated down the sidewalk. Immediately, he ran forward. Over his shoulder, the rambler closed in on him. He stumbled and dived into a small alcove. Just a foot away, the car raced by. His shoulder throbbed and his back wrenched in pain. As he rolled back onto the sidewalk, the rambler backed up on Main Street and the tires screeched. He heard scuffing and then felt the cold blade of a long knife at his throat. You ever go to the cops again, and I'll push this blade right into your neck. You got it? Why don't you just go to hell? Someone kicked Ben in the back of the neck. He bit his lip. The door closed and the car sped away. He struggled as he sat against the concrete building. Son of a bitch. Chapter 13 she held Ben's arm all the way up the high school hill sidewalk. The hint of smoke from numerous chimneys along the side roads signaled that colder weather had descended upon the town and the valley. Ben kept grabbing his neck. Ben, are you sure you're all right? They should have brought you to the doctor when you fell off that bar stool. No, Caroline, just a few aches and pains. I'm okay. As they crossed under the parking lot lights, she wondered if Ben had told her the truth. She followed him into the warmer gymnasium lobby. When Ben bought the tickets, she studied the smudged glass trophy case. She spotted Greg in three team pictures. A brass-plated plaque leaned against the championship trophy. Greg Provost, 65 points, PRHS versus Harrisburg, March 20, 1967. Ben placed his hand on her shoulder as she looked up quickly. He held two green tickets in his right hand. Seventy-five cents, Caroline. What a bargain. She touched her index finger to the scrape on his brow, and he flinched. Well, you hit that floor hard, Ben. Ah! Inside the noisy gym, Greg, in his red and black jersey and shorts, stood with his teammates mid-court in front of the team bench. 
He smiled when he saw her enter with Ben along the sidelines. The animated coach, Miskinnis, upper light shining on his bald head, ranted passionately to his players as cheerleaders waved their red and black pom-poms. Caroline escorted Ben into the crowded bleachers. Ben moved slowly, and she helped him sit against the cinder block wall. Something else happened to you, Ben. Nah, nothing else happened, Caroline. Right. Ben panned the bleachers. This place is packed. You'd tell me if Marco attacked you, right? Sure, sure. Well, Reedsville does love basketball. This place is packed. I'll have you know I'm giving up Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies for this game. Well, what a sacrifice, she laughed. She fixated on Greg. Ben, Greg likes me. Even at this age, I can tell. Whether he does or he doesn't isn't important, Caroline, said Ben as the crowd cheering intensified. Look, all we have to do is prevent that accident, and that's it. She spoke over the crowd noise. It's tough, Ben. I was married or will be married to him. It hurts. Ben stroked his chin and stared downward. I know. I truly know. After the tap-off, Greg's exhibition made the practice sessions look tame. Caroline screamed with the crowd and applauded when the kid at the microphone called out Greg's name after every basket. As if he had been turned up a notch, Greg ran faster and made quicker passes and moves and shot the ball through the hoop from every conceivable angle. As he worked the court, she understood his potential as she never had in Chicago. Greg even impressed Ben as he watched the fast-paced game closely. Ben repeatedly shook his head and did not utter a word until the opposing team called a timeout. A confused expression spread across his aging face. I thought he was your, you know, better-than-average high school player. He'd talk about playing ball, you know, after you'd had a few drinks, but this kid, he's an exceptional talent. Do you realize what kind of a career this kid could have had? Yes, Ben, I do. She leaned forward as the game started again and the players ran down the glossy wood court. Greg's leg muscles tightened as he leaped and his biceps were muscular and lean as he shot basket after basket in an effortless romp. His quickness overshadowed the other players. He could fake and weave, and he never tired. He scored 28 points, even though missing part of the second quarter. As the halftime buzzer sounded, both teams swarmed toward the locker room, and Ben banged his fist on the bleacher. We have to stop that accident, goddammit. Caroline, taken aback by his sudden emotion, hit his arm. Well, yeah. No, I'm serious. We've got to plan this thing out, which leads me to an appropriate subject. We need transportation. I've got the boys down at Muldoon's working on getting a car for us. With all that cash I won. Ben, we don't even have licenses. They'll have licenses for both of us. Ben, they're already looking into the gambling and you got me a social security card, and now we have to pull out all the stops. She stood and moved with the crowd down the bleachers. Ben, one screw up, and Greg will repeat history in December. He stood near the outer bounds line. Without taking chances, you can never go forward, and all you do is end up with nothing. They left the bleachers for a short time, and Ben bought Cokes back in the lobby. Caroline had the strangest feeling that someone watched her from a hidden location. She sipped the drink and constantly checked around the lobby and the gym for Marco. 
Again, she pressed her hand against the glass and stared at Greg's name on the trophies. I say he gets 50 points this game, said Ben, finishing a cigarette. Woo-wee, she exclaimed and raised her arm upward as she turned from the case. Woo-wee is right. I think the best thing we can do is have him miss that game on December 20th. She finished the coke and Ben brought it over to the trash can. Then his life will be different. You know, some people say that one event, one event can change a man's life. I met Amy one afternoon in 1947 purely by chance. Really? Yeah, I was actually looking for a job and I walked into this liquor store in Woodbridge. So Aunt Amy was buying booze? Oh, Jingleheimer Smith, no. I was going to that store and I bought a paper. She was walking down to her job at the drugstore down the street. I smiled at her. Right place, right time. Well, you never told me that, Ben. I miss her, Caroline. His brown eyes moisten. I just want to go to Detroit and see her one more time. You will, Ben. You will. She nodded and they entered the gym. Greg shot baskets with his team down the far end. Ben, are you telling me the truth? About what? Stop with the innocent routine. I want to know if Marco St. Germain attacked you. If I'm barked down by that punk, you'll know it. She stared at him as they moved along the bleachers. Ben's insistence on precariously ascending the bleachers left her doubting his story about falling off the bar stool. By the beginning of the fourth quarter, with Revere up by 20 points, people left early. The spread might have been greater if Miss Guinness had not rested Greg, who led all scorers with 43 points. But the lead fritted away during the last quarter, shrinking to just nine points at the four-minute mark. Thoroughly rested, Greg returned to the game, buzzing shots into the hoop, and Revere won the contest by 21 points. She moved with the fans and followed Ben onto the court. Once on the court, she meandered through the crowd toward Greg. Good game, Greg, she called out, but he did not hear her. She raised her voice and cupped her hands. Hey, Greg, good game. Greg, followed by a few cheerleaders, smiled when he saw her. Caroline, what did you think? Well, I was a little bored. It was a slow game. What? He asked with a shocked look, and then he grinned, pretending to hit her arm. Always the kidder, she turned to Ben. You must be Ben. Well, it's good to see you again, Greg. Again? We've never met, said Greg, laughing. See, he even has your sense of humor, Caroline. The crowd took him physically across the floor and toward the locker room. As they slowly separated, he called back to her. You working tomorrow night? Of course. At Binghamton's, you're important to us, she said as she repeated the store slogan. Before he entered the locker room, he called out. Meet me on Thursday night break. 7.30. She nodded and he disappeared inside. Ben's arms were folded across his chest. Unreal. He likes you. Maybe you're right. Maybe some things just transcend time. They squeezed through the crowd toward the gym, but she stopped him and held his arm. I'm just so happy, Ben. Well, I'm happy for you. As they headed into the crowded lobby, she smiled as Ben's words echoed in her mind. How could she be in love with her 17-year-old husband? In the lobby, she casually glanced down the detention room corridor. A hundred feet away, Marco St. Germain leaned against the door casing and sneered, Jesus God. Marco stared constantly at her and pretended to throw her a kiss, 
before ducking into a side classroom. What is it, Caroline? Marco! Marco! He was right over there! She said, pointing toward the classroom. Step over there to the ticket booth. I'll be right back. Stay right there. Ben pushed his way through the crowd and then hobbled down the dimly lit corridor. She worried about him taking on Marco as she backed up to the booth and stood with two teachers. Ben emerged down the corridor beyond the wire mesh doors a few minutes later. She met him in the hallway. No sign of him. He put his hands on his hips as he ran his teeth over his upper lip and scanned the half-lit corridor to his right. Her face tightened. He's out to get me, Ben. Nah, he's just a punk. I've seen a million of them in my lifetime. Show him a little intimidation and he'll back off. She shook her head. No. Hutch knocked him down. There's something wrong with this guy. Why did I have to step in front of that detention room? Don't blame yourself, said Ben, leaning back toward the dissipating crowd. It's as if you were destined to do evil, no matter, no matter when. It's just evil. Ben put his arm around her. You have your break with Greg tomorrow night. Talk to him. Forget about St. Germain. Her skin chilled as they moved into the colder air. She passed the parking lot and mentioned calling a cab, but Ben led her across the lot. As they headed toward the high school hill road, he insisted they should not be bullied. She assumed Marco would have left her alone after Hutch belted him at the market, but the incident may have only infuriated Marco further and hardened his resolve. This is a bebop, a key man in a so-called juvenile gang. Bebops rate heights. They're the muscle men. Sometimes, they're killers. Like just now, the murder weapon was a zip gun, a metal tube with a spring mechanism that fires a very real bullet. I knew the person on the outside who became Marco St. Germain. We weren't friends. As for the tough guy, St. Germain, I could rattle off a dozen characters who ate, drank, and exuded their machismo with a persistent vengeance. Whether I gazed at the sharpened, broken end of a Coke bottle directed at my neck, or a barrel of a shotgun panned over my friends and me. Perhaps Marco was the guy who was a sicko who set fire to our clubhouse when we were supposed to be sleeping inside. Swinging fists or wielding knives, they're all stuffed into the character called Marco St. Germain, who is lacking the presence of mind to evaluate his own stupidity. It's a vicious triangle between Marco, Caroline, and young Greg Provost, with the accident in December of 1968 hanging like the swordsman of death over it all. On these happy notes, I will return next week, minus the broken Coke bottle, matches, and knives. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Tread softly, Caroline. You never know where Mako is lurking. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.